Take your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 19. He chose Calvary the first time so that we could have a new heart and a new life. But he's going to come a second time, and we're going to get into that this morning. John MacArthur begins his discussion of uh, the passage we're going to look at this morning with a little introduction I thought was kind of interesting. He said, you know, a century ago, people believed that history was progressing inexorably toward a man-made utopia, the Industrial Revolution, the march of scientific discovery, and the increasing pace of social reform seemed to point to nothing but brighter days ahead. But today, however, after two world wars, innumerable regional, civil, and national wars, countless acts of terrorism and senseless violence and the nearly complete collapse of the moral system and the ethics of our world, uh, that rosy optimism of a utopia seems to have come and gone. But you know, the Bible teaches that things are going to be wonderfully better, but only after they become unimaginably worse. There's only one solution for the world's problems. Uh, it's not health care, it's not uh, welfare, it's not uh, any of that. It is the return of the true king, the Lord Jesus, to establish his absolute monarchy and uh, unilateral authority in the uh, earthly kingdom. Now, only under the rule of Jesus will there be peace instead of war, justice instead of inequity, and righteousness instead of wickedness. But before that can happen, uh, Satan is going to oppose everything that God does. There's going to be hordes of demons. The world's going to be filled with wickedness and sinfulness. And so in light of all that, this tribulation period that's going to be ushered in seven years immediately before Christ returns and after the rapture uh, is going to see this great empire of Satan or, or the Antichrist, and it's going to be a strange and interesting time because it's going to be the, uh, the greatest and uh, most wicked world um, system or, or government uh, like we've never really ever known. And, and while that is going on, there's going to be the great tribulation, the, the outpouring of God's wrath. And so, so it's going to be quite a time uh, that's going to happen before we see Jesus Again, now we left last week, we were talking about the second half of the tribulation period. If you were with us, you remember that uh, we were reminded that the Antichrist and the false prophet, uh, they would uh, come to light, they would come to power after the rapture at the beginning of the tribulation. Then about halfway through the seven-year tribulation period, uh, they're going to desecrate the temple in Jerusalem and they're going to uh, require all of uh, the world that wants to buy and sell to put a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. Uh, the Bible calls it the mark of the beast. You know the number 666. We've heard about that and you know, and all about that. So, so all that's going to happen. That's kind of where we left off. Now, if you remember, we talked about the marks. Of, it's going to be a mark of identification. It's going to line people up with the beast. It's going to be a mark of information. Uh, somehow, some way, uh, they're going to be able to follow people around and know uh, what's going on. If you think Big Brother's watching now, wait till then. Uh, but we're not going to be here. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you're a pre-trib rapture uh, believer like I am, we're going to be gone 
And we'll say a bit about that in just a moment. But it's also going to be a mark of, uh, a mark of destruction and then a, uh, uh, a mark of decimation. And so we kind of ended up with that. And then after the mark of the beast, John kind of reviews back some other, um, Things here in Revelation chapter 14, he talks about the, uh, he goes back and revisits the um, 144,000 Jews that are going to be converted. And then he spends some time talking about the final seven plagues, the, the great apostate church, the great harlot, the great whore church in Revelation 17. And then in Revelation 18, he talks about how the, the new, the Babylon that's going to come to fruition uh, during the time of the Antichrist, how it's going to be destroyed. And so it kind of goes through all that. Now, time is not going to allow us to go verse by verse through uh, the balance of Revelation. And so uh, we're going to skip ahead. But I need to say this. If you really want to study Revelation in more detail, and if you really want to look verse to verse and chapter to chapter, may I remind you that Bruce Billingsley is teaching on Sunday nights uh, right here, uh, most Sundays. Now, summer schedule is going to be in and out. But he's going through Revelation verse by verse and chapter by chapter. He's smart enough to understand all that stuff. So you need to come and hear Bruce uh, speak on that subject. So what we're going to do is we're going to jump ahead of that. And I want us to look at Revelation chapter 19, a very exciting passage of Scripture. Why don't we begin in uh, verse uh, 11, may we stand, let's stand together and just honor this reading uh, of the coming of the Lord Jesus. Listen to John, what he saw. He said, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows, but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's read on. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them, that's the armies, the multitude millions, the rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Shall we pray together? Father, what an interesting description of the second coming in the final battle that ushers in the end of the age. Father, as we stand together and as we sit in just a moment and open and look into the Word, 
I would invite you, Lord, by your spirit to come and meet with us and to speak into our hearts and into our lives. Lord, what, what, a, what an exciting yet uh, penetrating passage to think about the second coming of Jesus. Now, God, we live in a world, Father, where people question and they taunt and they say, well, you know, this stuff, so you don't believe that. And, but the reality is, Father, soon the Lord Jesus is going to come. And he's coming a second time apart from sin unto salvation. And what a glorious, glorious day that's going to be. And Father, I would that each of us would be ready. And Lord, the Bible says the way to be ready is to have a personal living relationship with Christ. And uh, we'll be taken out with the church. And uh, so, God, I pray this morning that you would uh, teach us. But, Lord, for those that hear that may not yet know Christ and may not have settled their eternity, I pray that you speak clearly to them about being saved and being born again so they might be ready for the coming day. To those of us who believe, may we learn and know so that we might live in light of the second coming. So come and have your way in our lives, Father, and we'll give you the glory and the honor for it all. For it's in Jesus' wonderful, wonderful name, I pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. You know, the time is coming when the Father... I mean, there's going to be a day when the Father says, Enough is enough. And He's going to look to Jesus and He's going to say, Go get your church. And that's going to kind of usher in or begin this start. You know, uh, we're, we're at the point now in, the, in this... In Revelation here where the seals have been opened... The trumpets have been sounded, uh, the bowls have been poured out, and when that happens, then Jesus is going to come in all of His glory and all of His majesty. And you know, the Bible says that His enemies will be made His footstool. So what of this second coming? What about the return of Christ? This morning, what I want to do in the next few minutes is I want to share with you four characteristics of this coming. And I'm going to try to clarify a few things and just kind of prepare us uh, for, for what's ahead. So let's just talk about these four different aspects of the coming or of the return of Jesus Christ. First of all, let me just say this. It is going to be a visible return. You know, some people want to spiritualize Revelation and some people want to spiritualize the whole idea of the second coming. But the Bible's very clear. Uh, John's very clear. He said, I saw heaven open and, and I saw a rider on a white horse, and he goes on to describe it. But interestingly enough, you know, uh, and we didn't really get into this in detail, but in, in chapters 2 and 3, John records Jesus' message to the seven churches. And that's a whole other sermon series that we may get to at some point in time, but that's kind of the complete message to the church. But at the conclusion of that, John sees this vision in chapter, beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, and that's a vision of God on His throne. And chapter 5 is a vision of the Lamb and the scroll, which we talked about in great detail. But interestingly enough, in fact, let me just, uh, let me just read uh, chapter 4, verse 1. It says, After this I looked, and there before me was a, was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I, I, heard, I first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place. Now, it's kind of interesting. In, in Revelation 4, 1... God opens up heaven and says, John, I want you to come up here. And then he shows him everything that's going to happen. He gets here to Revelation 19, verse 11. The Bible says John sees heaven open, but it's not to let John in. Heaven's opened up here to let Jesus out. And when Jesus comes out that time, it is going to be a visible 
return to the earth. I mean, it's just going, it's going to be so obvious. As a matter of fact, the Bible says in Matthew 24, Matthew chapter 24, listen to the description of, uh, of exactly what that event is going to be like. You probably got it on the screen. Look, look at that. For as lightning, that's quicker than me. For as lightning comes from the east, is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. When Jesus comes, when, when this happens, it, it's going to be obvious. I mean, it's going to be like a thunderstorm at midnight. I mean, you can just see it all. And the world is going to see the Lord Jesus. It is going to be a visible return. Now, let me just take just a moment and clarify something because because here's the, the idea. Now, we've been talking about this for a few weeks. But there are two thoughts when you talk about the second coming, when you talk about the return of Christ. There are two events. There is the rapture of the church. A lot of people think of the rapture as the second coming. But in reality, the rapture kind of is the beginning of the day of the Lord, but it, it's, it's really not the second coming that we're reading about here. Now, the Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 that Jesus will descend for, and following all through the rest of that chapter. But he says that Jesus is going to descend from heaven with a shout, the dead in Christ shall rise first, then those who remain who are believers will be caught up together to meet the Lord uh, in the clouds, in the air. And so when Jesus comes to take the church out, he's not coming here. He's going to descend into the atmosphere. The trumpet's going to sound. The angel's going to shout. And we're going to go up. So that is, that's the rapture. Now think about this. The rapture is when Jesus comes for his church. Okay, that, that, that begins this uh, tribulation period as I understand the Scriptures and as we understand the Scriptures. Now, the revelation of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus, is, is when He comes with His church. He comes back with His church. We'll look at that in just a moment. But when He comes the second time, it's at the end of the tribulation. And the Bible says that He is coming to Earth. As a matter of fact, I think it's in Zechariah chapter 14, but the Bible says that he's going to plant his feet on the Mount of Olives. I mean, he's coming back to the same place he left from in Acts chapter 1. He's going to come right back to the same place. Matter of fact, the Bible says when he comes back that, uh, that the, that Mount's going to be separated. It's going to, when he stays, it's just going to be divided. And so what an awesome time that is going to be. So you, but you need to understand the rapture happens, then the seven year tribulation, at the end of that tribulation, then the revelation or the, the actual second coming of Jesus. Now I've been reading some theology on this and, and, and nobody agrees with me, but, but I want to tell you this. I just had this thought. You know, the rapture starts the second coming in the day of the Lord, you know, this whole tribulation period. But I was thinking about this. I don't know if it was last night or this morning, but I was thinking about this. You know, in the Bible, seven is the number of completion, right? The church goes out, seven years, Jesus comes down, it's completed. There's a connection. He comes, takes the church out. During the seven years, great white, I mean, the, uh, the judgment seat of Christ, perhaps the marriage supper of the Lamb, then we come back with Him. It is going to be a visible 
visible return. He's not going to sneak in. And, and Now, when he comes to the church, it's going to be like a thief in the night. I mean, it, it, I mean, the Bible over and over and over says he's going to, I mean, it's going to be sudden. It's going to be quick. It's going to be in the twinkling of an eye. I mean, he's going to come and we're going to be, it's going to be gone. But this time, when he comes the second time, man, he's coming, got the armies of heaven with him, riding on this horse, and he's coming down. He's going to plant his feet on the Mount of Olives. It is going to be visible. As a matter of fact, John begins Revelation. Listen to Revelation uh, chapter 1. Listen to verse 7. Verse 7 says, look, he is coming with the clouds. By the way, he left in the clouds. Acts chapter 1, verse 11 and following. So, look, he is coming with the clouds. Now, look at this statement. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. When he raptures the church, when he takes the church out, it's going to be quick. It's going to be like a thief. It's going to be come and just boom, they're gone. But when he comes this time, listen, friend, everybody's going to know. And a lot of them are going to be trying to hide. And they're going to be asking the mountains to fall on them. And they're going to be going into caves. And they're going to be trying to get away. And you can't get away from the King of Kings. So it's going to be a visible, it is going to be a visible return. Everybody is going to see it. Now, you got to remember, and we haven't really talked about this yet, but when this happens... This is, Jesus is going to come after the anti, the beast, the Antichrist has gathered, has drawn all these armies to the Middle East, the area, the region around Jerusalem. They're going to attack Jerusalem, try to destroy Jerusalem. I mean, there's going to be untold millions and millions of, of people, you know, army from the south, the army from the north, the, the 200 million from the, everybody's converging on Jerusalem. And then Jesus is going to come. And so it's going to be an awesome thing. It is, it is going to be a visible return. But let's notice, secondly, not only is it going to be a visible return, but there's a second thought. It's also going to be a victorious return. Let's, let's look there. Let's kind of take apart, uh, beginning in verse 11. He says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. Now, let me just say a word about that. The white horse, now obviously white means good, black means Bad, you know, all you cowboys, if you want to be a good cowboy, you wear a white hat, right? And, and then the rest of us wear a black one. I guess that's how that works. But the, the idea of the white is the idea of, of purity. Uh, it's the idea of victory here. Uh, John MacArthur says that he, re, he rides the traditional white horse because in, in, in the old days, it was ridden by victorious Roman generals in their triumphal processions through the streets of Rome. Now, uh, so, so this, the idea is that he, he, he's riding the victory horse. But even more than that, the idea of the white horse talks about the purity and the majesty and the holiness of the one who is the rider. Because it says that its rider will be called faithful and true. He is faithful and true. And then look at this statement. With justice, he judges and makes war. Now, we're going to come back to this thought in just a minute because some people have a little issue with this. But then verse 12 says, his, his eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. Now, let me just say a word about the blazing fire. His eyes are like blazing fire. Man, they can penetrate. You know, people are going to be trying to hide. People are going to be trying to get away. But they're not going to get away. 
You can't hide from the eyes of the Lord Jesus. He can look into the deepest recesses of a man's heart and see what is there. He can look into the deepest recesses of the earth. There's nowhere to go to get away from him. You know, the, and the, the psalmist said, if I go uh, to the heights of the mountain, he is there. If I were to go to the depths of the sea, he is there. There's no getting away from the eyes of the Lord Jesus. He can see everywhere. And so the, his eyes are like blazing fire. And then look at that second statement. On his head are many crowns. Now, the word crown there is uh, more than a victor's crown. It, it's more the idea of a ruler's crown. And he's got many crowns. So he's coming as the ultimate ruler. That's why the verse says a little bit later that he will rule the nations with an iron scepter. He may very well have a, have a diadem or a crown for every nation because he's coming victoriously to rule the world. And then notice what the, and this is kind of interesting because it says he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. Now, I was reading one of the, you know, everybody wants to speculate, or not everybody, but some people want to speculate what this name would be. Well, my Bible says that he's the only one that knows. So if you read somebody and they try to tell you what that name is, just read on by it, because they don't know. Now, he may reveal it on that day, but but it's just, you know, he's coming. It, I mean, we know him as Jesus Christ, and we know him as faithful and true. But his, his, you know, the Bible says he has a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. What a powerful, victorious name that he has. And then look at verse 13. It says, he is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. Now, in case you're thinking, or someone's thinking, this may not be Jesus. Oh, yes. This is obviously Jesus. Because the, the key statement, obviously the robe dipped in blood, I think, gives it away. But his name is the Word of God. Remember John 1.1? Anybody remember John 1.1? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. Then John 1.14 said the Word was what? Made flesh and, or He became flesh and made His dwelling among us. This is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And He is coming victoriously again. You can mark it down. You can write it down. It is going to be Quite a day. And so it's a victorious return. It's a visible return. But I want us to notice a third thought. And this is where it gets a little more challenging this morning. Uh, not only is it a victorious and visible return. But let me say also this. That it is going to be a vengeful return. Look at, look at verse 15. It says, out of his mouth, out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which... To strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now some people, some people find it difficult to think about the justice of God. Now a lot of people, everybody wants a loving God. Everybody wants, God is love. They want God to love, but, but there's a lot of people, they don't want a just God. 
They want a God that's loving and he's like Santa Claus and he gives us whatever we want and we can do anything we want to do and we can get away. You know, we just want this loving, kind, gracious, merciful God that has no expectations of us. But the Bible says that now we do have a loving God and, and, and he is tremendously loving. As a matter of fact, the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him would not perish or should not perish, but have everlasting life. And the Bible says in Romans 5, verse 8, or, uh, that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But the same God that loves us unconditionally is holy and he's just. And he is, you know, his time, uh, you know, his grace and his patience is going to run out. God is going to come in vengeance. Did you know the Bible says in Romans 12 verse 19, God says, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. If you have the King's English, it says vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It says that in Hebrews. It says that in Deuteronomy. It says that in, in Romans chapter 12. The day is going to come. Where God exercises or executes his vengeance on the world. As a matter of fact, if you have your Bible, I want you to turn back with me to 2 Thessalonians. I really want you to see this passage of Scripture. It's really important that we look at this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And um, why don't we just pick up in verse 6. Now, I know that's not what's going to come up on the screen, but let me pick up in verse 6. Listen to what it says. It says, God is just. God's fair. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed. There's that word, the revelation, the revealing of Jesus. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified, his holy people, and to be marveled at among those who have believed. Does it, does it ever happen to you that you pick up a newspaper or maybe you get on the Internet and you read about how Evil and wickedness seems to win out. Maybe it's some really wacky thing where some guy, you know, commits a bunch of murders and then suicide. Maybe it's when, when uh, somebody that's doing good is treated wrong. Maybe it's when the church of the living God is persecuted. For no apparent reason. I, 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 don't, I don't know how it works for you. But sometimes I get really, really frustrated. Because it seems like good is overcome by evil. 
And, and I can remember years ago, I went to India about 10 years ago. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd listen to them pastors and they would tell these stories of how they would get beat and how their people would get baptized. And when they got baptized, you know, they would get beaten and some of them would even be martyred for their faith. And, and I could just remember, you know, and they'd be talking about how we need to, you know, we need to reach these militants. And I can remember praying, you know, God, I'm just, I'm kind of like David in the Old Testament. God, give them a chance to be saved. And if they don't want to be saved, kill them. Just kill them. Because there's a part of me that says, man, there needs to be some vengeance. Well, friend, I want to tell you, don't lose heart. The day is coming where Jesus will make everything right. God is just. Now, He's gracious. He's merciful. He's kind. He's loving. He's all of those things. But He is gracious. He is merciful, but He is just, and He is holy, and He's going to come, and He's going to punish sin because... I mean, listen, God has to... To be fair, to be fair, God has to get... The people that don't want God in His love and grace, that want to stand against Him and to be in rebellion against Him, to be fair to them, God has to give them what they want. Just like to be, to be fair to those who want to be born again and to be saved and to experience God's grace and mercy. To be fair to them, He gives it to them. To those that don't want anything to do that, He's going to give it to them. He's going to let them have it. It, it, it is going to be a, He's going to come with vengeance. And so He's coming victoriously. He's coming vengefully. He's coming visibly. And then one other thought, and man, if you think the vengeance was bad, listen to this. He's also coming violently. He is coming Violently. Notice verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair. Come gather together for the great supper of God. Wow. I don't know if you've done any reading. And we're going to look at some of this here in just a second. But let, let me just say this. When this supper starts, the, the Bible says they're going to. They're, they're going to just capture the beast. In fact, let's just read about it. Let me see. Verse 18. Uh, it's going down to verse 19. So then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. And then it goes on to say the two of them were thrown into the lake of uh, or the fiery lake. Of burning sulfur. Now, here's what I want you to understand. Just last week, we saw the power that the beast had. Just last week, we saw the false prophet. And man, they had the ability and the power to force everyone on earth to take the mark on their forehead or on their hand. And if they don't take it, they get to decide whether they live or die. They get to decide where they buy or sell. They get to decide where they eat or, or not eat. I mean, that's to starve or live. I mean, they have, they have the decision of multitudes of billions of people are in their hand. But all of a sudden, listen to this, all of a sudden their time is going to run out. Here's a principle. Time always runs out. Always. Only God transcends time. For the rest of us, Time runs out. If you if you like football, time runs out. If you play baseball, I mean, it, 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 it happens. You know, you want to live your life? Hey, time's going to run out. 
It ran out for them. And here's what we need to understand. Some of you are playing with this whole idea of spirituality. You've never been born again. Some of you have been going to church your whole life. You've never been born again. And you keep saying, you know, one day I'm going to be saved. One day I'm going to walk down and give my heart to Jesus. One day I'm going to stand publicly and declare my faith. And one day I'm going to be baptized to say to the world, I've declared my allegiance. One day, one day, one day, one day, one day. John Maxwell once said, he said, one of these days is none of these days. Friend, I want to tell you, time always runs out. Always. They were on top of the hill. They had the world by the tail. Time ran out. Don't think you got forever. You don't. Because time's going to run out. But let's look at it. It was a, it's going to be such a time of a, John Phillips, here's what he said. Uh, the great scholar uh, said, then suddenly it'll all be over. He says, in fact, there'll be no war at all in the sense that we think of war. I mean, imagine this. The Antichrist, under false pretenses, he's gotten the armies from the south, the armies from the north, the armies from the east. He's gotten them all there. He wants, you know, they're thinking they're coming to destroy Israel and they're going to be attacking Israel. But he's got them there to make war against the Lamb of God because he knows what's coming. So he's got them all there under false pretenses and he's thinking he's got his made. But, but Phillips knows. He says that there's just going to be a word spoken from him who sits on the great white horse. I mean, it's, it's not going to be a war. I mean, listen, Phillips goes on. He said, once Jesus spoke a word to a fig tree and it withered away. He said, one time he spoke a word to howling winds and heaving waves and the storm clouds vanished and the waves fell still. He said, once he spoke to a legion of demons bursting at the seams of a poor man's soul and instantly they fled. And he says, now he speaks a word and the war is over. I mean, they're all gathered there to fight and Jesus says, put them in the pit and they're going into the pit. And then the Bible says that out, just by the, by the word of his mouth, the rest of them are going to be slaughtered. Slaughtered. It is a violent, violent time. He is going to, you know, that, you, the imagery of treading the wine press of the wrath of God. What an image. As a matter of fact, turn back to Revelation 14. Listen to verse 20. This is, I believe, a picture of kind of how this is going to happen uh, when the Lord harvests the earth. Verse 19 says, The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, probably in the valley of Megiddo, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horses' bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Now, I, I'm not sure I can find it. In fact, I'm not going to try to find it because I, 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 we'll spend our time looking. But you ought to read in Zechariah the description of this battle. I mean, the Bible says in Zechariah that, that these armies are going to be gathered. And I don't want to be grotesque, but I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. It says it's just like they're, they're, they're just going to rot away. It's almost like, if you read it, it, it almost sounds like a nuclear meltdown. This is going to be a violent, violent time. This is going to be a vengeful time. God is going to say, enough is enough is enough. Son, it's time to go. And when he comes, 
He is going to exercise God's wrath on the earth. Now, his return is violent. It's, it's, going, to be, it's going to be his vengeance. It's going to be victorious. It's going to be visible. Now, you're thinking, okay, preacher, if I'm raptured with the church, what, is that, what does this have to do with me? Why does this matter to me? Well, Dr. Adrian Rogers gives four great reasons. I couldn't make them better, so I'm just going to give them to you. Four great reasons why this matters. First of all, uh, he says that uh, the reason this is important is because we need to learn about his coming. As a child of the king, you need to know about his coming. Because a lot of people you rub shoulders with have no idea. A lot of people I rub shoulders with have no idea. We need to learn of his coming. Secondly, uh, we need to look for his coming. We need to be looking for his coming. Because we know that before any of this we've talked about this morning can happen, the church has got to be raptured. The church has got to be taken out. And we know that it's going to come. You know, it's not the end of seven years. It begins in seven years. We don't know when it's going to be. It's going to be like a thief in the night. It's going to come suddenly. It's going to come quickly. It's going to come rapidly. And we need to be ready. And so we need to be looking and watching for his coming. Friend, we need, we need to, we don't need to be looking at so much of what's going on around us. We need to be looking for uh, above us because one day and maybe one day soon, He's going to come for his bride. And so we need to be, we need to learn about his coming. We need to look uh, for his coming. And then we need to long, we need, there needs to be a longing for his coming. Our hearts need to be so right and our relationship needs to be so pure and so good that we're looking for, that we're expecting, that we're hoping, that we're longing that he would come. That, that, that we just want him to come. And I'll tell you, friend, things ain't got to get much worse before most of us will be hoping that he comes. There needs to be a longing for his coming. And then, um, and then last of all, we need to be living for his coming. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that when he takes the church out, that you and I are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And at that point, every one of us will give an account of ourselves unto God. There's going to be a final exam. You know, he's going to audit your life. He's going to audit my life. I don't know what he's going to ask us. don't know how he's going to ask us, but he's going to ask us some questions. He's going to want to know what you did with your life. And so you and I, we need to be living for his coming. We need to be living for his coming. Can I just ask you, believer, this this morning? Are you satisfied with your life right now? That you could say, boy, I sure wish he'd come today. I'm so ready. I'm so prayed up and I'm, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm just ready. Are you living so faithful to him that you say, man, I'm ready for him to come today? Because if you're not, let me just encourage you. Why not, why not get ready? Why not spend the rest of your time? Let's spend the rest of our time being ready, getting ready for him to come. You know, I talked to you, you know, I preached a little bit about vacation Bible school. You know, wouldn't it be amazing that, you know, what if Jesus were to come this week? Wouldn't it be cool if he found uh, you sitting in the floor with a kindergarten class talking to him about the Lord Jesus? 
Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be neat if he came this week, if he found you out in the field playing with the, with the four-year-olds or the nine-year-olds helping shape their perception of Jesus? I mean, wouldn't you want, wouldn't you want him to find you busy for the glory of God when he comes? Because I want to tell you, he's coming. I'll tell you this quick story and we're done. I, I promise. But there was a young lady, um, she had, um, gotten invited out on a blind date. And so she started getting ready and she started, she's thinking about it all week and she just decided to take the day off. She took the day off. It was Friday. She cleaned her apartment and just fixed her apartment up real nice, picked her out a really nice dress, got ready, was, was ready even a few minutes early. And she sat on the couch just waiting. She had such anticipation. Well, the hour came and her date didn't show up. And she waited about an hour. After about an hour, she thought, he ain't coming. She went and took off her dress, took off her makeup, let her hair down, got her pajamas on. About two hours after the appointment, there was a knock on the door. She goes and opens the door. There she was standing in her pajamas, her hair draped down, her makeup's off. He said, my stars, I gave you two extra hours and you ain't ready. <laughs> huh? She had plenty of time. But she wasn't ready. Y'all, we got time. We need to be ready. What do you need to do? What do you need to do with your life today? So you'll be ready. Let's pray together. Father, I know in the auditorium there's men and women and boys and girls that have never given their life to Jesus. Father, they can't be ready until they're until they give their life to Christ. It's impossible to be ready for the second coming if you've never been born again. And I want to say to you who are here this morning, you've never been born again. You've never been saved. Maybe you're a church member, maybe not. Maybe it's your first Sunday. Maybe you've been coming your whole life. But if you've never given your life to Jesus, could I just ask you this morning, would you get ready today by giving your life to Jesus? Would you, would, you, would you say this prayer to him right now? Lord Jesus, I realize today that you're coming soon. Lord Jesus, I've never trusted you with my whole life. And today, I want to open my heart to you. Lord Jesus, today I invite you to come live in my life. Forgive my sin. Give me a brand new start. Jesus, I confess you as my Lord. I receive you into my life. Thank you for coming into my heart. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for giving me a brand new start. Friend, if you've never been born again, I hope you prayed that prayer with me right then. The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But also, I would just ask you, if you prayed and invited Jesus into your life, or maybe you prayed before today and you've invited Jesus into your life, but you've never publicly declared your faith. You've never came down and said to your pastors, hey, I've given my life to Christ. You've never been baptized to say the world, I've given my life to Christ. Would you pray this prayer with me? Would you say, Lord Jesus, give me the courage to stand boldly for you. Lord Jesus, help me to be courageous enough to be baptized, to say to the world, I've given my life to you. Thank you, Jesus, for courage. Thank you for the boldness. 
to say yes to you. Friend, if you'll pray that, then you'll, God will save you and he'll give you the courage to stand publicly and say, I've given my life to Christ. You say, why is that important? Well, the, well Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me before men, I will be ashamed of him before my Father in heaven. But whoever confesses me before men, him will I confess before my Father who is in heaven. So if, you're, if you were born again, let me just encourage you to tell someone and be baptized in obedience to Jesus. Now, I want to say to those who are believers, some of you here have been believers uh, most of your life, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, even some more years. I won't go there. But are you really ready? If he were to part the heavens at this moment, if the trumpet were to sound, are you totally satisfied with your life? What do you need to do this morning? What commitment do you need to make? What area do you need to surrender? So Jesus is totally satisfied with your life. So you're not ashamed when he comes. Would you pray this prayer to him with me? I'm going to pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, I want to surrender my life to you this morning. Totally and completely every area. I want to be ready when you come. I want to be faithful until you arrive. Lord Jesus, help you to find me busy for the kingdom when you get here. I invite you to work in my life and help me to live for you in every way. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Father, I pray as we close out this morning that our heart's desire would be readiness. That we would be living. We, sure, we need to learn about His coming. Sure, we need to look for His coming. Sure, we need to long for His coming. But God, we need to be living for His coming even today. God, help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me ask you this. Has God led you to make a public commitment this morning? If, you've never, if, if you prayed with me and, and you asked Jesus to come into your heart and into your life, man, I hope you prayed for the courage to step out from where you are. Come down while it's here. I'll be down here. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to share with the church that you've opened your heart to Jesus Christ. But many of you, you prayed with me. You surrendered. You said, you know, God, I want to be ready. I want to be living in readiness till you come. Maybe God wants you to make that public. I don't know. I'm just saying if God's leading you to make a public decision for Christ, why not honor Him? Why not obey Him this morning? Let's stand together. The choir's going to sing as they sing. If you need to come uh, make a decision for Christ, maybe you need to join the church. Maybe you need to get baptized. Uh, Come and let us know what God's doing in your life. You come as the choir sings.